0: podcast. Your source for stateside views on Everton Football Club. Hosted by Alex Johnson and James Boyman.
1: What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the American Toffee Podcast. James here, as always, joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Coming to you about an hour and a half, two hours following Everton's one nil victory at Norwich, a interesting match. Pretty boring first half, and then second half kind of picked up. Overall, hard to hard to say anything negative against three points. Moving on up the table, finally in the top half. After a long extended hiatus, we are back. Alex, what's your immediate instant reaction to that match?
0: It feels good to get our first three points since God knows when. Um, I think just in general, four points from our opening two matches in under Project Restart is probably better than anyone could have asked for, really. Um, And although it wasn't necessarily the most exciting performance, I think defensively, um, we were very solid. And I think that it's just something to build on. You know what I'm saying? And and really, something that we've been crying out for legitimately for years now is just for Everton to beat the teams we're expected to beat, right? We've been guilty of playing down to opponents lower in the table, right? We usually play more energetically when we find more space against teams that are playing more open attacking football, but the teams that are playing that are lower down in the table that usually pack it in and try to clog the midfield like we saw today, we find it really hard to break them down and we, we, we end up slowing the tempo. And so I'm happy that we picked up a win on the road against the team that we are supposed to beat.
1: I think that's a totally reasonable takeaway. And furthermore, Everton's first victory this season against a newly promoted side. I guess not newly promoted now. It's been almost a year. But the side promoted for the first time this season, Norwich. We obviously lost to them back in ancient history times (laughs) earlier. I guess it would have been last year. To get the victory means a lot. Three points. Again, like you said, Alex, a very disciplined Performance. I mean, we really didn't give them much of a sniff as far as having opportunities. I think Jordan Pickford ended up making one save with their one shot on target. But yeah, it's three points, four points total since we've, since we've returned climbing up the table, doing everything we need to do. And it just feels good to celebrate a victory for the first time in a while. So let's, let's circle back a little bit and talk about the lineup because not too much to talk about, but we did have Bernard come in for Anthony Gordon, which was a nice change, I suppose. Uh, on, on paper, at least when we were looking at the lineup releases, what'd you make of that, that
0: change? I mean, I thought it was pretty much to be expected. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you and say that, you know, Anthony Gordon started on Sunday because he was the, uh, the best choice in general at left mid. I think that we're seeing with Ancelotti that he puts players into positions for very specific reasons, if they feel like they can do one thing better than others, a really good example was a on the right-hand side, let's say uh, Sunday and today um, we, you know, we know that he's either a left-sided player, but more preferably a central player, but he was working really hard defensively in both games on the right-hand side. And it seemed to work out. I think, I think that Gordon was probably chosen on Sunday to start based on a, um, specific tactical reasons right i mean i would assume that his size is is a positive for you know an opponent like liverpool in which we're going to be defending quite a bit um but also maybe it's more so you know a factor of you know he wanted bernard more fresh and fit for the midweek game because it's a little more complicated now that we're playing you know two and three matches a week he's going to have to pick and choose who he feels are the best uh, best fit for specific opponents throughout the week and kind of manage their their workload that way. So I feel like it was not necessarily surprising. I thought it was a pretty positive change on paper, although obviously we all wanted to see Anthony Gordon um, get significant minutes. Uh, but overall, I mean, it was pretty expected. What about you, James?
1: Yeah, I think the Gordon substitution or I guess him starting last match was maybe more of a function of of his ability to do work off the ball, knowing that Liverpool right. were likely going to dominate possession. And of course, Bernard being a more experienced senior player, Ancelotti thought he might offer a little bit more going forward. So I think that's, I think you hit the nail on the head where like, Based on the tactical approach to the game, you have to select your personnel. And given the fact that we're playing so many games in such a congested period of time, you really have to be intelligent and decisive with with who you put in on any given game because you don't know what their fitness levels are going to be. And actually, trying to segue into the actual match, I do think that from the get-go, you could see a bit of the fatigue from the Liverpool match kind of trickle into the start of this one. Did you see something similar?
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like we definitely started the game slow. and. You know, I think we saw as we progressed through the first half, it kind of continued that way, even after. To be honest, after the water break, you know, everyone's making a big deal about this water break simply because, um, well, a, people are complaining that maybe it's Americanizing the sport too much, but b, uh, <laughs> the big, ba- which is true. I've seen it all over the place. Um, but but the other thing really is just the fact that it gives the coaches uh, another moment. Well, two other moments throughout the match to talk to their players and and tweak different things. And and it definitely didn't necessarily feel like it changed a whole lot in terms of our our first-half performance. But I think our biggest issue in the first half, what we saw very early, was Norwich essentially packed the middle of the pitch. When we're playing a 4-4-2 the way we've been playing, actually what we're doing defensively is is coming inside and making it very congested for, for teams. And so what we saw with Liverpool... And then in effect we saw with Norwich was we saw them being forced to play more on the outside. And I think the thought process behind that is make, make the opposition play on the outside and swing crosses in. We're going to have numerous bodies in the box and ideally we know how to handle it. Well, in effect, I feel like their formation kind of stifled us a little bit. And so two names in particular that really stood out, and I think you'll probably agree with this were Tom Davies and Andre Gomez. And in my opinion, I don't think they stuck out, stuck out for a good reason, and that was pretty much from the get-go.
1: Yeah, Tom Davies not doing himself any favors in winning winning over the fan base as a whole. We know he's a player that at times undeservedly gets a lot of stick, but today he was atrocious in just about every sense. I mean, his work rate off the ball was okay, but just about everything he did when he was near the ball was just a complete whiff, as they say. There, including a literal complete whiff at one point when he tried a volley <laughs> and just completely missed. But besides that, I mean, there were some bizarre touches that were nowhere near anyone on our team. There were misplaced passes, weird runs, all Miss sorts tackles. of confusing things. Missed tackles. Yeah. It, like chopping at people's ankles, but not really making a, a decisive decision as to whether he should actually foul them or not. It was confusing g- given that I thought he played fairly well against Liverpool. Maybe the fatigue again plays a factor. So I, I, I'm not one to write off Tom Davies because he gets older every day, but he's still relatively young and still has time to to come along. But he definitely didn't do himself any favors today. Andre Gomez, I I think it was a function of again, Norwich's willingness to kind of. At times they would press as far as maybe 15, 20 yards past the midway, midway line, but mm-hmm. they seemed pretty determined to allow Mason Holgate and Michael Keane. They're very comfortable with having those two on the ball and just giving them no real outlets. And furthermore, like we really struggled moving the ball laterally and Norwich had a very easy time keeping up with our players, making sure that, that, that there wasn't any real space, even on the wings at times. But I did think the one bright spot, and this is a trend throughout the whole game, was Alex Iwobi on the wing very early, just looking to get the ball to feet and turning and getting the ball forward. Something that I don't even think Bernard really was looking to do all that well. And it was a real struggle for, I'd say, in the entire first half to get either one of our strikers involved in any way. Absolutely
0: agree. Uh, Now, Alex Iwobi, the thing that I was most excited about when we signed him was his ability to keep close constant control of the ball whether that's on the touchline or surrounded by uh opposition opposing players and also obviously his his eye for goal right just his ability to kind of create chances and i thought you you're right even starting in the first half alex Awobi was 100% the bright spot in terms of getting the ball up right so we found it hard playing through the middle because andre gomez tom davies weren't necessarily having a very good day and so then we decided to switch to Long balls. We know our signature move is knock it up to Calvert-Lewin, and he's going to knock the ball down towards Richarlison, and we have ourselves some possession in the attacking third. (laughs) However, to be honest, in the first half, Richarlison looked completely off the pace. His touches were not that good. His passes were off. Him and Dominic Calvert-Lewin were not able to connect very much or very well at all. And so not only could we not really play the ball centrally, you know, up the, up the center of the pitch and, and kind of d- divvy it out the ball that way, we then couldn't go long balls because that was ineffective just simply based on the fact that it didn't seem like they were clicking. And you saw physically, you saw a little bit of sh- frustration from Dominic Calvert lewin in a couple, of, in a couple spots in which he legitimately like throws hands up, or you could see that he was kind of frustrated with, with Richarlison too. And so, you know, that could very much be fatigue. You know, I think that you know Carlo Ancelotti, with how how many details or with how detailed he is in his instruction and the way he sets up teams and their execution, I think it's a lot for the players to digest. Also, and sometimes you know you might be focusing on okay, I need to position myself over here so I'm ready for the press, but in reality, you know that comes after positioning yourself near Dominic Calvert-Lewin in a way that you know he can knock the ball down, right? And so. And that was just an example. That's not necessarily what happened. So I think there are a bunch of different factors, but that was definitely, you know, a big reason why we really struggled to do anything, get into the match at all in the first half.
1: Yeah, and to our credit, like Norwich didn't really do a whole lot either, so it was kind of a stalemate. I Correct. think both teams were were sort of feeling each other out. Norwich had the extra couple of days of rest to get fit for the match. Interesting not to see Timo Puki in the starting lineup for Norwich. He did, of course, eventually come on as a substitute. I'm wondering sort of what the reasoning behind that was because they really did not have very many options going forward. I thought as much as Mason Holgate and Michael Keane had the ball, there were actually some interesting moments in the first half when Mason Holgate would receive the ball and doing our typical side to side passing around the back, yada, yada. But there were times when it was clear that Mason Holgate like got fed up with it and just said enough right. is enough and started to look to at least drive the ball to the point where a defender would have to come and mark him. And then that, that freed up some additional right. space out wide or in the middle. So I, I do like that aggression for Mason Holgate. I think that's what many fans liked about him when he was in that sense, cent- uh, Defensive midfield position for that yep. brief spell. I think that's an element of his game that obviously is something Michael Keane does not have. And not to, not to speak badly about Michael Keane because he, of course, ultimately ends up scoring the goal, which we'll talk about shortly. But the, 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 I almost think that they complement each other in, in a really interesting way that, that kind of benefits the, the way that we've been playing, at least in these past couple games.
0: Yeah, I can appreciate that because you know, Michael Keynes is bigger than Mason Holgate, and he, generally speaking, does well in aerial aerial duels. Whereas Mason Holgate has more pace. You know, he's better on the ball. Um, I think, generally speaking, he has good defensive awareness, and so I, th- mm-hmm. I mean, you're right. They they do complement each other, and I think where one kind of shortfalls, the other does make up for, and so that you know that makes it a, a pretty good defensive pairing. And I think over the last two matches, we've seen that they really. Legitimately on the defensive side of things have not put a foot wrong. Agreed. And the,
1: and the whole back line deserves a lot of credit today. I mean, I thought Seamus Coleman, of course, had his man of the match performance last match. This time out, maybe not quite as influential, but there were, he did get, look to get forward a few times. I thought that Hernandez for Norwich was by far their most dangerous player. At least in the first half. And, you know, he got the better of Coleman a couple of times, but overall kept, kept their entire offense fairly quiet. So, and, and of course, Luca Dean combining with Bernard, there were a couple moments of, I wouldn't say brilliance, but maybe inspiration coming between the two. But it, it was clear that Bernard was, was pretty rusty and it ended up being a Wobi that was the, the star of the day.
0: Yeah. I mean, we saw both of them, Bernard and a cutting in quite a bit um and trying to combine with the two forwards and 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 you know honestly both of them that's probably the the best way for them to play assuming they are in the position they're in like their current positions I think both of them are best cutting in uh and so we I mean we did see that so so let's talk about halftime right halftime comes we're all wondering what it is that we're watching um Carlo Ancelotti has a good talk with the team apparently and then the screens flash up and we see Gilfie Sigurdsson coming in for Tom Davies at halftime. Uh, I think we all know that that is never a good sign for any player to be subbed at halftime. I think you and I probably agree that it was fair based on his, his performance or lack of performance in the first half. So right off the bat, you know, when Gilfie Sigurdsson come in, what do you think? How do you think the game changed or did it change at all? Oh, it totally changed in that we didn't have
1: half of our midfield completely absent from the game. Again, (laughs) no disrespect to Tom Davis, but like you could have put in basically anyone instead of him and they probably would have done better. And again, I don't mean this to be disrespectful or pile on, but that's really how bad he was just based on his first half performance. And so Gilfie Sigurdsson obviously hasn't, similar to Tom Davis, hasn't done a lot this season to really get the the support of the fans or get the fans behind him, but he did come in and he provided some stability and he provides the work rate, the legs, um, you know, maybe a little bit fresher because he hasn't started the last couple matches. So even fresh legs make a big difference, but then, um, you know, he, he was influential. He was able to, to give us some more solidity and possession. He ended up with a 95% pass success rate. So, Tom Davis, I think, was at like sixty-five percent. So just in that, just just not in like actively turning the ball over, that was a huge change. But I also think just his experience, his vision, which has always been a strong suit of his, he he definitely provided that. And then you know, complementing Awobi a little bit, they were able to to combine to to be a lot more effective than than the prior partnership was.
0: Yeah, agree with all those points. My I think though, if I if I had to describe his influence once he came in at halftime. I think the one word would be control. I think we saw it last weekend and we're, we saw it today definitively um, that Sigurdsson comes in and he offers more control of the ball and the pitch. And some fans might not want to hear it. Um, and, and I know that he's not the fastest player, but we're getting to the point where, you know, if, if Tom Davies is not offering any sort of decent performance uh, week to week, or match to match, let's say, because there is no week to week nowadays, it seems. Uh, then I think that this only spells or this, this only ends up being, um, some sort of, of spell for, for Gilfie Sigurdsson back in the starting 11. But, you know, back to the second half, as we saw the second half progress, we did, we did definitely gain more control over the ball. And I thought like the tempo was, was a little bit better. And do you find it surprising? I know you mentioned Alex Wobey specifically and how they were able to combine. Do you find it surprising that although Alex Wobey is probably the best player for Everton in the first half, he really started to shine in the second after Gilfie Sigurdsson comes on? No, I just think the whole cohesive like unit of the team definitely
1: started to click a little bit more. And, and there may be people more qualified than I to speak to the exact tactical changes that Carlo right. Ancelotti made, but it just seemed like everything was a lot more effective where like you basically, uh, I feel so bad, but you literally were basically playing with 10 players for the first half, right? Round that Tom Davies was. So even by virtue of just having another body in there who's capable and, and Gilfie Sigerson is a good player, just it hasn't come off for him this season. Right. I, I do think that there was like a lot of, of more experience, more composure on the ball, ability to, to find the open man and do the simple, simple things more effectively, that just started to make the engine start to to hum a little bit more effectively. And you started to see it materialize. We were moving the ball more quickly. We were finding more open spaces. And our players were able to exploit that. And although we ended up, of course, not scoring from open play, we did score from a set piece. And Michael Keane deserves a lot of credit for what was a
0: fantastic, fantastic header. Honestly, he had a fantastic... Uh, he had a fantastic performance overall, right? So if we dive into some of Michael Keene's stats, uh, he had 63 successful passes. Um, you know, he had a bunch of successful forward passes, long balls. He created a chance. He had 91% pass accuracy, which is important, especially when you have a team like Norwich, which is sitting back. And as you said, they gave him and Holgate a lot of space. And so that means they have more opportunities to be on the ball. And your center backs are generally speaking, the least talented of the squad in terms of being able to ping that ball where they really want it to go. But on the defensive side of things, his stats really pop off the page, right? He won nine aerial duels. He had six clearances, three recoveries, three interceptions, and he had two successful tackles all while scoring the winning goal and getting three points for Everton. Um, so we've been talking up Alex Owobi, but uh, according to who scored and based on these stats, um, Michael Keane was man of the match. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say,
1: like, he was extremely dominant in the air, didn't give Norwich an inch, a single inch inside of our 18, was really resolute and and composed on the ball, which is not something we're really accustomed to seeing. I mean, he doesn't do anything too complicated, but he's secure with it. He's He seems to be growing in confidence with the ball at his feet. And these are the types of games where Michael Keane generally, honestly, can struggle because we're playing maybe a little bit more expansively than we generally do. Like in, in a match against Liverpool where we're compact, we're sitting back all the time. That's where he tends to excel like he did again. Uh, while yes. he was at Burnley, when we try to expand and he has the ball at his feet very often, he tends to get a little bit lost, look a little bit out of place. But today I thought he, again, he doesn't try to overcomplicate things. He knows what his job is and he did it extremely well today. And on top of that, he was able to find the back of the net resulting in all three points. So, I mean, we can talk about Alex Iwobi's stats a little bit as well, but I, I think, you know, he get Alex Awobi will get a lot of the praise because of the flair and the dribbling and all that. But Michael Keane, I think overall had the best, most well-rounded game of anyone in the squad.
0: Right. So, so let's talk about Alex Awobi for a little bit, just in terms of stats, right? Um, so he had. Three chances created. Now, he had a 74% pass accuracy, but in general, we expect attackers to have slightly less pass accuracy because naturally, they're the ones taking more chances, more risks going forward, trying to play quick one-twos and that sort of thing. However, on the defensive side of things, right, he had nine recoveries. He had four clearances, two successful tackles, two interceptions. So that right there tells you why Carlo Ancelotti feels confident having him Play on the outside of a flat four four two, and specifically why he was placed on the right hand side last week against Liverpool because he's been doing a fantastic job. And and on top of the three chances created on the offensive side of the ball, he had four successful dribbles as well. I think that he did a fantastic job. He was always looking to create, obviously, because three chances in a match is nothing to scoff at. That that's very good for us for a single player to create. And so I think that was that was definitely a positive performance from him. And I I personally look forward to seeing more of them.
1: Yeah. And and especially when you take into account, like this is not his favorite position. And it seemed like he was really excited to finally have, uh, I guess the restrictions taken off of him Where against Liverpool, he had to play back and play very conservatively, helping out James Coleman on the right-hand side. And it seemed like today, Carlo was like, you know, have at it, show him what you got. And he showed us quite a bit. He showed us, a real aggression with the ball, a real sense of purpose when he had it in his possession with always like doing something f- with, with intent and not just doing things for the sake of doing them. Like he would right. try to take on a man consistently. He would, even when he tries dribble moves, like there's always, he, you can tell he's trying to free himself up to get by the man, not just doing random stepovers and things. And, and I, you know, he's, he's not generally regarded as like extremely quick, but I thought, was really impressed with his agility today because I yes. thought, you know, some of his body fakes and things that he was able to, to pull off were, were very impressive. And um, maybe it's been, so it's been so long since we've seen him play. Maybe I've forgotten that he has that, but I think it's safe to say that we have yet to see the best of Alex. It but I think this was a step in the right direction for showing us really what type of player we signed in the summer.
0: Yeah. And you know what though, to your point, I mean, I think it's safe to say we haven't really seen any consistent play time for Alex will either. He was always in or out of the match, you know, coming on as a sub. He never got a solid handful of games starting in a positive position. But, you know, we did see him, you know, start on the left hand side under Marco Silva a couple times, or at least play on the left hand side. You know, everyone was really worried about him playing on the right in the last couple matches because we know he's not even that or he wasn't performing that great on the left, which is supposedly his second best position. How could he perform well on the right? And now maybe this shows you What a difference in just straight up managerial news it is between Carlo and Marcos Silva that, you know, he's playing him in, let's say, a tertiary uh, position, and he's performing the way he's performing on the offensive and defensive side. No, I think that's a fair
1: point. Probably also worth just mentioning, like, Norwich are bottom of the league and are... Need to win, what, five of the <laughs> seven matches in order to not get relegated. So I don't want to get too, too excited because That's this true. is not a good team. And furthermore, they were pr- missing probably two of their best players in Todd Cantwell and Pookie. So, right. you know, let's not say that we're going to all of a sudden get Europe or anything like that. But it is three points and it's a much needed confidence boost for the side. I think, you know, between this and the Liverpool match sets us up for a really good rest of the season. We have our objectives. Carlo Ancelotti has been very vocal about them. So I say, you know, let's push on and go get it. Um, one quick stat that I did want to highlight and because this is, this is, this comes from Matt Cheatham, who's a a statistics analyst. And this is about set pieces. So Everton's best Premier League, Everton have the best Premier League record from corner since Ancelotti took over. We're averaging a goal for every 11 corners taken and the next best. Ratio for any other squad in the Prem is one in 22. So that's our sixth goal off corners in 13 games. Unbelievable because and I wanted to highlight this just because it's so at odds with what we've seen under Marco Silva, where it was like we'd never score from set pieces, but would always concede from them. And yet all of a sudden, just in a managerial change, we've completely changed course where it's now we're basically rock solid from set pieces on the defensive side. And it seems like we're banging them in. So credit to Carlo for that. I mean, that's just mind boggling to me because it's the same squad, arguably even more depleted than what Marco had at his disposal.
0: You know, I think that's a really nice statistic. And furthermore, we've seen, again, one of the other things that I'll say that we've been griping about for years is just the lack of any sort of just cohesiveness on set pieces, offensive or defenses, right? Defensive, excuse me, right? But obviously, statistics show we are killing it. Uh, we haven't, you know, we haven't been conceding very much on set pieces either, obviously, since Project Restart, not at all. And, and then to see, of all people, Michael Keane nod one in. I think he really needed one, too. And so I'm glad that he was able to do that. But I can't say that the Evertonian in me has left and that I still don't clench every time there's a set piece, specifically on the defensive side of the ball.
1: I was going to say the exact same thing. They still give me an unreasonable amount of anxiety every time we give one up. Set pieces, corners, all of it. Uh, it's probably going to take a little bit for that sense of existential dread to die down. <laughs> but uh, I think that probably wraps it up for our for our match summary, right, Alex? Any last thoughts or observations from today's game?
0: No, I mean, let's just move forward. I think to wrap up, um, just, just an update on the Premier League table as it stands currently. We're now moving up we have moved up into 10th place with 41 points. And so uh for a good measure we look at Tottenham in 7th place with 45 points. So it's fair to say that we are still technically within reach of Europe. We don't know how, you know, how the spots are going to play out. Sometimes 7th gets it, sometimes it doesn't. Um but I do know that it's within reach. I think that we we had this this discussion James prior to the Liverpool match. And, and I think we both well, we definitely both thought that this is just kind of a let's finish the season, kick the tires on a lot of the a lot of the squad players and see what we really have to do uh, before the start of next season. But now it's starting to look like we could have a chance at, at something. And so, you know, depending on whether we can make up that gap or not is is to be seen. But I think it just gives a little bit of a little bit more excitement to Evertonians around in general. I told
1: myself I would not even consider the prospect of Europe until we got through the Derby. Well, we got through the Derby with a point, and then we beat Norwich with a point. Or three all, got all three points, rather. I'm back on the Europe trade, baby. Let's go. <laughs> Choo-choo. Yeah. Let's get it. I'm excited. Uh Obviously, this is going to backfire on me horribly, as it always does as an Evertonian. But I'm all gung-ho about this. I really... Considering the fact that we literally have like three fit central midfielders, uh, it's going to be quite the task. If we get any more injuries, I'd say those chances become very, very slim. Worth noting, I, I don't think we mentioned this, but Morgan Schneiderlin is gone. He's off to Nice for an undisclosed fee. I think that news came out yesterday or yes. two days ago. So even further depleted. I mean, you look at the bench today. We literally, the only midfield sub that we had besides... Sigurdsson was Benny Beningamy. So unless we're going to all of a sudden convert Martin Stecklenburg to a <laughs> lockdown defensive midfielder, we're going to have some problems on our hands if we pick up any more injuries. But I'm not going to let reason get in the way of my relentless, Never. distant optimism. <laughs> we're going to get Europe. Ladies and gentlemen, we got this lockdown. Let's go. Um, so that's that's my last word on the match. Alex, did we want to talk about some drama that's unfolding on Everton Twitter right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I guess we do. So this is in regards to the new stadium at Bramley Moore Dock. Now, if you're active on social media, specifically plugged into Everton social media, or just a through-and-through Evertonian, then you've had or seen other people have a certain feeling that something with this stadium will go wrong at some point. And it has been fantastic to this point. But now. Apparently, there's trouble in paradise. So a man named Dan Meese, who is actually an he's an American architect, was designing and has been involved in the process for a long time now in designing our brand new stadium. Uh, I think they've put out a couple of different iterations, at least to the public, obviously. Right. So the club would have seen a whole lot more. Um, and these were through like public consultations and stuff. He's been putting in a lot of work. He has. He says, and he's been very vocal about the fact that he is an absolute Evertonian. He loves the club. He loves the fans of the club. And all of a sudden, he sends out kind of some, a cryptic tweet, right? And initially his tweet was a couple days ago. And it was, it was a subtweet. Actually, it was five days ago. He said, if I learned anything from this year, it is that when someone says it isn't personal, it's just business. I probably shouldn't have been been in business with them to begin with. That sent Evertonians in a spiral, and that prompted him to respond, and he said this. Let me be clear. I am fully confident that Bramley Moore will be built. It is both right for the club and the city. Unfortunately, I am not currently engaged in the project. How that was handled is one of the greatest disappointments of my career. And at the appropriate, one second, next tweet, (laughs) time, I will comment. For now, please understand that this is my personal Twitter account, and I believe it or not, not everything I write is in reference to Everton. Uh, I love this club and have loved the interaction. So unfortunately, it seems that for one reason or another, he is not involved at all in the process. It's just been the plans have just been handed over to a firm based in the UK. And I think the general sentiment across the fan base, although I haven't asked you about it, James, so we'll hear your opinion in a second, is that. We're all kind of wondering why he was, it seems, kicked off the project and why he is so disgruntled about It's it just unfortunate.
1: Yeah, first things first. I mean, it is it's just unfortunate because as so many people who have come in contact with this club come to find out, this is a very special fan base, a very engaged fan base, an extremely passionate fan base. And I don't know if Dan... Is it Meese or Mice? I'll say – I know you say Meese. I'll say Mice. I don't know if Dan Mice knew exactly what he was getting himself into when he entered into the initial conversations about designing the stadium. But whatever he thought he was getting into, I think he got a lot more than that as far as how responsive the fans were, how interested they were, how much people wanted to hear from them. We were practically hanging off his every word, every tweet, every cryptic photo that he posted on his Instagram. Everyone (laughs) was so so – Excited about the prospect of the stadium, and so passionate about someone getting it right. And then when the the designs dropped, it was like he knocked it out of the park. Couldn't have been a I don't think there was. I saw maybe one negative response out of thousands and thousands of people, and everyone was super excited. Like this is unbelievable. This is incredible. It went viral, and so I think he really felt like proud of the work that he had done, and really was looking forward to delivering on the end product, the product. And I know absolutely nothing about architecture, about construction contracts, about anything. But clearly at some point, Everton decided that it wasn't going to be feasible to keep him on. And I'm sure that eventually they will come out probably sooner rather than later and clarify their reasoning for that. But clearly it did not go over well with Dan and the way that it was communicated also did not go over well because for him to air it out publicly seems... Relatively out of character because he's before this, he was a very private guy. Like I'm pretty right. sure probably 90% of his followers on Twitter are Everton fans at this point. Like we just latched onto this guy. And so for him to, he must feel very like disgruntled and like disrespected almost, not to put words in his mouth about how this all went down.
0: Yeah. So then the Liverpool Echo released an article talking about the, the Everton stadium plans, right? And according to the Echo, it was understood that the plan was always to take the architectural designs and change or hand them over to another firm called Pattern in the UK for execution. But Dan actually responded to the Echo's article from an hour ago and said, he went on to say, I'm sorry, but if this was in quotes, quotes, always the plan, no one shared it with me. In my 30 years of designing stadiums, I have never had to work, had our work taken over by another architect without remaining in a custodian slash oversight role. So, you know, as you mentioned, neither one of us know a whole lot about how that works, but I think that offers some clarification too, because he's not saying that he's upset that it was that, that the, that the execution was then pushed to another firm, specifically in the UK. I think he's saying he's upset because. He doesn't feel like he's still involved. And, you know, if you work on something that long and put a lot of a lot of time and effort and spirit into something that you're making, something as big as Everton Football Club's new stadium, then I think anyone would be upset by that. But, you know, we we're obviously not privy to all the details. All we have is one man's tweets. And so you never know. They could have offered him a role, but maybe he didn't like the details of that role. You know what I'm saying? You you just never know. So it's unfortunate, but but I think that there's a lot of unknowns, and hopefully he will at least remain, you know, a happy Evertonian in regards to just football on the pitch.
1: Yeah, I I don't think there's too much more point in us like rampantly speculating about it. I'm sure that both parties will hopefully clarify and come to amicable terms because he does seem like a really good guy and the designs were outstanding, and I truly hope that we can deliver on that vision that he so beautifully designed and, and created for us to finally move forward into a new era of the club. But I, I it just, it, it's just a bizarre scenario the way it has all sort of played out in public. And you know that Everton Twitter is just going absolutely bananas over it.
0: Absolutely. Well, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in as always. Hopefully you all feel as spirited as we do after three points. You heard it. James is is firmly on the europa train so hopefully you, hopefully you can join him on that um and until next time up the toffees thanks for tuning in to the american toffee podcast
1: come join our discord community at invite.gg atp and follow us on twitter and facebook at usa toffee podcast